If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. So, the issue on parables. Parables have one point. But unpacking a parable sometimes... Uh, the way we're going to do it, and this is, by the way, the fourth sermon in a series. We'll finish the series next Sunday. Uh, the reason I did the series now is because we are gearing up for the resurrection of Christ. By the way, Friday at 6.30, we're going to have a uh, Good Friday service. So, would encourage you to be here for that. Uh, Really, the best time to think about evangelism is Easter because Jesus rose from the dead and he reigns at the right hand of the Father. And so this is a, a pretty good series. Uh, next Sunday, I, I didn't like the verses that they gave, so I used my own verses. But when we think about parables, parables basically have one point. However, as you go through a parable, you can make application, and that's what we're going to do this morning. Just making some points as we unpack what I consider one of the greatest parables uh, in Scripture. There's a lot of uniqueness to this parable. So, looking at this parable, we want to first of all note it's the only parable that uses the name of a person. Lazarus. Other parables say a certain man went into a field. These, these parables are uh, nameless, but this one has a name. A second thing about this parable is that it is divided into two parts. That's unusual. So uh, first of all, in the uh, unusual category would be the mention of a name. Of course, the rich man could have been anybody, although I think it might have been somebody that was known to the hearers of this parable. The first part of the parable contrasts two lives. Well, actually, it contrasts two lives all the way through, and we'll unpack that as we go through as well. Uh, Luke 6.20, going backwards, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Uh, the, the object here on poor, uh, in the sense of spiritually poor, but also the message of the gospel. And when you think about the message of the gospel, it is to the outcast, it is to the downtrodden. Yes, it's for everybody. The rich have a hard time understanding their need for Christ. A second thing is Luke 6.24, just four verses later, Woe to you who are rich. And this comes out really well as uh, Luke unfolds it for us today. The second part of the parable is in 27 to 31. Unbelief and unrepentant life leads to eternal consequences. So as we unpack this parable this morning, I want to go through and just kind of make some observations. There were a lot of observations. I could have had 10 points, but we have to get out of here at a reasonable time. The first point is this, something that none of us like to talk about but is a fact. Number one, death is certain. 
Look at verses 19 to 22. Now, Luke writes, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. Purple indicates some form of royalty. And so when we look at this rich man, he's draped there in purple. He was obviously a man of stature, a man of financial wealth. That's why Luke calls him a rich man. He was also draped in fine linen. And that word, bousseaux, uh, many scholars believe that this is Egyptian linen, which was very expensive in the day. So on the one side, and there's going to be contrast throughout this, on one side you have the rich man who, for him, life in this world, this temporal world, was good. He was the one percenter. He was the one that was at the top of the ladder as far as finances. I think about every time I think about a mansion, I think of Dr. Lee and what he said one day in Bible college in an Old Testament class about mansions. I mean, if two people live in this house, how many rooms can you sleep in in one night? And then to have servants and all these things. So when we talk about wealth, we're talking about things that can detract from reality and ultimately an eternal destiny. Uh, not only was this man wealthy, no doubt he probably lived in a palace, and I think it would have been known. I think it would have been known, and I'll, I'll, I'll get to my point in a minute on that. But this man ate well. Every time I think of extravagant living, I always think of Robin Leach. The Lifestyles of the Rich and the Famous. You remember that show, right? I was, I was once invited by a church member. I was very uncomfortable with this. And maybe I've shared this several times. We went to a private golf course. And I remember the guy that was, we had a tea time set up. And he told this individual who was quite well off. He lived in Bath. I don't know how, how much his house was, but it was worth a lot. I remember the person that was signing us in for our tea time. He said, uh, you do realize it's $500 for him. And he said, that's fine. I was very uncomfortable. The whole thing made me uncomfortable. I had one of the people there take my clubs and he wanted to clean them and do my shoes. And I said, no, that's okay. You don't, you don't need to do that. At lunch, we had a $250 
by faith. That three-hour block was $750. I just felt uncomfortable. Um, I wound up having my biggest problems with that person because of his wealth. I'm not talking minor problems. I'm talking big problems. Might have been some things I could have handled differently. And that's fine that he wanted to live like that. But the average person doesn't live like that. I'm uncomfortable when you have to pay $75 for a plate of food. In my mind, I'm thinking $15.99, right? <laughs> um, now, granted, when you go to a steakhouse, it's going to be $25, but I will let that be in excess just a couple of times a year because I like steak. How much do you need? How much do you need? And I look at this rich man. This rich man was clothed in the best. He lived in a palace. He feasted. I mean, we, we have no idea what he feasted on, but these words signify it was a lot of food. You know, I, when I read these verses again, I, I, I flashed back to that golf outing. And by the way, this golf course had Jack Nicholas's wall locker. It was in Ohio. It was kind of like a Firestone type country club. I just wasn't comfortable as a pastor receiving that kind of... And of course, watching this man over a series of five years, came to realize that status was important to him. This rich man had status, no doubt. This rich man had status. On the other end of the equation, let's look at verse 20 and 21. Now this rich man was eating, he was dining, he was dressed to the hilt, and at his gate laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Here you have Lazarus, possibly the food, the excessive food that fell from the table was then ushered outside to those who were outside the palace. You're basically eating the leftovers from what people either dropped on the floor or what they fed and just threw it down. The contrast is so great between the one percenters and the rest. But not only that, Lazarus was covered with sores. Shows that uh, his station in life was not that good. And also that he was in probably a lot of pain. Who was this Lazarus? Now I kind of walk through this and I think about, well, let's go through it. It could be Lazarus of Bethany, the brother of Martha and Mary, 
who in 11, John 11, was raised from the dead. Given the parable that uh, this man died, possible that this wasn't the Lazarus. There's also the possibility that this was a symbolic name. That's a possibility. You know what I think, having gone through this and looked at everything, I think it could be an actual beggar that was known to the disciples and the Pharisees. Could have been somebody that sat outside, and of course, if that's true, then the rich man would have been well known to the audience as well. And if it is, I, I'm just going to guess it can, it's either this one or this one. But the fact is, his name, Lazarus, is mentioned a couple of times, once with uh, being raised from the dead after four days. And you know what his name means? This is interesting. God is helper. God is helper. So you get this two extreme lifestyles. The wealthy man, the poor man, who's in bad shape. Not only that, moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it's possible that as Lazarus is eating his food, that these dogs are trying to get the food as well. It also says something else about Lazarus. Robert Utley is correct. This showed that Lazarus was weak to fend off the scavenging animals. Dogs were not house pets in this time and culture, but were street mongrels. So it wasn't like, come here, Rover, let me give you some food. These, these dogs were probably licking these sores and maybe even trying to get the scraps off the rich man's plate from his table. So you could picture an image here where the, the rich are feasting, uh, they're dressed to the hilt. Let's give this to Lazarus. Let's give this to the poor. You know, maybe I've been a pastor too long, I don't know. But it just really gets me. It really gets me. And don't get me wrong. There are a lot of wealthy Christians that give a lot. But I would say this. Too much is given, much is required. And does a rich man need a 12-bedroom house for two people? There is a thing in life where excess can really point to where your priorities are. So here, a very clear distinction is drawn. It was very intentional. The poor man, this is the second contrast. Look at verse 22, if you would, please. The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. Let's look at this for a minute. One man was carried. One man was buried. 
One man was carried by angels. Write this down. This is very, very important. This is the only time in Scripture where we find that, that a person is ushered into the presence of God by angels. No other place. No other place in Scripture. So here we have one man who is carried and one man who is buried. All of a sudden now, the parable stops and makes a clear distinction between the rich and the poor. Here the rich man is just buried. There is a sense of hopelessness. You get that? The rich man is buried. Done. Finished. But Lazarus is now carried. He is now lifted up. So the first part of this parable looks at the fact that Lazarus is downcast and the rich man is exalted. And now we have a reversal of fortunes taking place. The rich man is now lowered and Lazarus is now raised. Thank God Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for our sins. Thank God that he was able to go to the cross to pay for our sins. Apathero is the word for carried, and it means to be taken away. I, I got fixated on this and it permeated my study this week about the hope that angels come and they carry you to be in the presence of God. And, 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 and again, in, in researching this, none of us, none of us have ever crossed over. But think about the hope for a moment. Think about the hope. I have seen a lot of believers pass. I've been at their bedside. And what a joy to watch them leave and to go to be in the presence of God. Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord instantaneously. And here we have a bit of hope in this story that seemed hopeless at the beginning. Death is certain. Years ago, um, my father-in-law was talking about uh, his friend that died. And he said, that's not going to be me. And I said, Mike, you're going to die and I'm going to die. Unless Jesus comes back and we go flying early, you're going to die. And he did. Death is certain. Think about that for a minute. I, we kind of like to kick the can down the road, but death is certain. Whether you're rich, whether you're poor, death is certain. A second thing we're going to note in this in this parable, and here's a picture of Lazarus going up. I love that. I love that picture. The second thing is hell is real. 
Now look at, the ver- look at the narrative in verse 23. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Basanos, the word for torment. It means severe pain associated with torture. So this isn't, this isn't like a party. The rich man immediately, when he was buried, he went to Hades or to hell. And very soon we're going to find out the significance of this and why it should place, this should be on our hearts as far as evangelism goes. That the fact is, people don't have to go to hell. We have the gospel living in us so that we can share the good news with those who need to hear it so that they don't wind up in a predicament like the rich man. It should drive us. It should motivate us. We should look for opportunities to share the gospel every day. Brothers and sisters, there are people in the world today, even as I speak, somebody is passing away. Where are they going to spend eternity? It should make us alert and aware and to open our eyes and to think about things. I, I love this picture. So here you have the rich man who is in the fire and you have Lazarus who went to be with Abraham. By the way, Abraham's the father of our faith. Paul says, Abraham believed God and it was accredited to him as righteousness or right standing with God. So here you have the, the picture of the rich man, and, and you, you can't miss the image. Lazarus is now exalted. The rich man is now lowered. It is a complete reversal of fortune. Notice verse 24. And he called out, a lot lot of things can be drawn from this. Um, And he called out, Father Abraham, he was a Jew. Probably knew Mosaic law. So, Father Abraham, oh, here's the big one. Have mercy on me. And send... Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water so that he might cool my tongue. Just a dip of water, kind of like what Lazarus experienced sitting outside his palace. He is asking for mercy. That it might cool my tongue, for I am in anguish. Mercy is eleo, eleo. And it means to show kindness to someone who is in serious need. Evangelism is helping people who are in serious need. Like I said, there's a lost world. You go right out these doors this morning. You go in either direction. You go up to Champaign. You go to Sidoris. You go all over the place. There are people 
who do not know Christ. And it should propel us. It should motivate us. When we really get a vision here of what is transpiring. And the word, oh do now, which is in anguish, means to be in great pain. It's no secret, I've had a lot of teeth issues. It's inherited. My dad had it. My uncle had it. One day, several years ago, a dentist, I had to go to a special dentist. And first of all, I don't like dentists. Just ask Ruth. She knows I don't, I don't like them at all. <laughs> but they're helpful. He had to cut my gums and he had to insert bone into my upper jaw. At that time, Summer was with me. After the pain med, after the injection wore off, I wanted to die. The pain was unreal. And it wore off as we were driving from Bloomington to get the medication. And I was like, I have never been in such intense pain in my life. And I was driving. <laughs> Summer was saying, Dad, stop and let me drive. No, I got this. Brothers and sisters, that was the most pain I've ever experienced in my life. And I think about Lazarus. My pain was relieved and it was only a fraction of what Lazarus was experiencing. I'm going to say it, and I know it's not popular in our culture today, and in Sometimes it's not even popular in the pulpit. Hell is real. It is a real place where people go to really suffer. And God brought that illustration to my mind when I was writing. Michael, remember when, when that dentist had to put bone in your jaw? Yes, I do. I don't want to go back there ever again. Right? Hmm. So this rich man's now calling out because he's in pain. Notice verse 25. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received the good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Trent Butler writes this, the rich man needed a history lesson. In life, he had enjoyed all the luxuries. Lazarus, on the other hand, enjoyed no luxuries, only bad things. Now the situation was reversed. Lazarus received the comfort he had begged for all of those years. I know that we struggle I know that we go through hardships. 
I know that we experience pain in this life, right? Sometimes pain, loss of a loved one, pain of just life. But let me encourage you this morning to stay the course because at the end of this life, we get to see Jesus and we get to rejoice. What a joy to see the Savior face to face. And how much of the old life is shed at the moment. Yeah, you struggle now, you stumble now, you have hard times now, but there's coming a day when it's all going to be wiped away because of what Jesus did on the cross. He paid for your sin and mine. That's the only reason I'm going to heaven. There's nothing really good in me apart from Jesus. That's a fact. I'm, I'm, I'm amazed. I, I really truly am amazed. How many pastors will not say that hell is real? It's like they're going to get in trouble or they're going to offend somebody if they say there is an opposite direction of heaven which is hell. It's not a place where people party. It is a place where people are in pain. And we need to recapture that. And I think this is what Luke is driving us to think about. Not only is death certain, and hell is real, but thirdly, our destination is final. Look at verse 26. And besides all this, this is verse 26, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able to. And none may cross from us from there to us. This word chasm is the word cosmos. And it means a deep, unabridgeable valley between two points. The word fixed, sterizo, the Greek word sterizo, to put something firmly in place. I like simple stuff, so this is simple. Here you have two realms. On the one realm, you have Hades. And on the other realm, you have heaven. Very clear, very distinctive. But then there's something that takes place. There's a chasm where there's no crossing. Once you're there, you're there. The day of dispensational grace ends the moment that you die. One of the saddest events in my life happened when I was a very young pastor. A woman in my church said, can you go talk to my husband? I probably mentioned him before. He was in bad shape. When I went into the hospital and I went into his room, he had tubes running everywhere. I mean a lot of tubes. And I got down right in front of him and looked at him. And I said, your wife is concerned about you. I know you cannot talk, but I want to share the gospel with you. And he was looking at me straight. 
I went through and I said, your wife wants you to know Christ. And I spent seven minutes sharing the gospel. And at the end of the seven minutes, I said, I know you're tired. But would you like to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior? With tubes all over him, he looked at me and went, The reason I remember this so well is that was my first funeral ever. And I went to Dr. Windsor. I was nervous. I said, Dr. Windsor, the man rejected Christ. And he said, Michael, the best advice, and I've used it for 30-something years, the best advice is to when somebody dies without Christ, Say something nice about the person and then preach to the living. And that's what I did. I never forget that guy's face. Hmm. What do you tell a wife? What do you tell the wife? that her husband that she loves rejected the gospel. Mm. If I'm remembering that right, he died the next day. But I gave him the opportunity and he rejected it. So sad. So sad. But I've had a lot of other good experiences where people have been dying and they've received Christ on their deathbed. Wonderful stories. Here's another thing. Not only is uh, death certain, hell is real, our destination is final. You're not going to pray somebody out of hell. You're not going to have them cross over the great chasm because you can't. There's no crossing. And I think part of the fact, if we are to take this story literally, which I'm kind of doing that. I'm taking it literally. I think part of the hell is seeing heaven and knowing that you cannot get there. Brothers and sisters, we've got to get back to our first love, and our first love is Jesus, and our first love is sharing the gospel and, and doing it lovingly so that they can come to know Christ. Fourthly, we remember our earthly lives. There was a theological premise being pushed by some theologians that when we die the, the theology was annihilationism 
And the annihilationists believe that when you died, you ceased to exist. Or if you do exist, it's in some other form where you cannot remember anything. Luke tells us very clearly. Listen to the text, verse 27 and 28. And he said to them, I beg you, Father, that's Abraham, to send him, Lazarus, to my father's house. For I have five brothers. You get that? You're not annihilated. You're in hell. You can't do anything about it. And what's interesting is, so that he may warn them, that is Lazarus, lest they also come to this place of torment. Listen to this. The lost person is now evangelizing. You catch that? The lost person realizes, I have five brothers. Send them to go share the gospel so that they don't have to endure what I'm enduring. This is an evangelistic call from hell. Another thing that takes place here is that we do remember our lives. You are not annihilated. Now, we don't know how much of everything else. And if I take this story literally, which I am again, then there is no communication with the, with the former. You remember them, whether heaven or hell. You remember your past life. And I know this is said often, he's looking down on me. I don't know. I don't know about that. I know it gives us great comfort to think that our mom, our grandfather is looking. I've even used it myself. Well, they know now. Well, there's no communication. And, and this man knows the reality of the gospel, but it's too late to do anything about it. So he's really concerned about his five brothers and his father's house. Warren Wiersbe wrote this, how convicting it is to hear in Hades, people in Hades calling for somebody to witness to their loved ones. People cannot be forced or frightened into trusting Christ. I agree with that. They must be persuaded. And he gives some scriptures. If God's people could spend one second in hell, perhaps they would become bolder witnesses for the Lord. This is indeed a solemn account that both believers and unbelievers need to take to heart. I think he's right. Think if you were to go to hell for one second, you'd want out, pretty sure. The reason we have a hard time understanding these concepts, because none of us, including myself, none of us know the ultimate reality here. We have to go with what the narrative says. Because here's the issue. We have never been in a disembodied state before. We've always been in an embodied state. 
But I can tell you for certain, having watched believers pass from this life to the next and having experienced a lot of things, I can tell you that Jesus is ready to receive you when you pass. And that is the great hope. We are, listen, I know this seems like a downer sermon, but I, I want you to realize that this is the reality of life. We have never experienced that disembodied state. Someday we will. We have no idea. And if I take this literally, angels are going to grab me and take me up. I realize you can't build an entire theology on one verse, but we get there from here and go to be with him. Second Corinthians 5.11 Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Brothers and sisters, go out this week. Share the gospel. Don't cram it down their throats. Just love them. Just love them. Tell the gospel message. The God, think of it this way. The gospel is good news. The good news is you can have a relationship with God. And by the way, if you're watching today or you're listening to this if you don't know Jesus Christ why not trust him today and for those of you you're not really sure today is the day for salvation but Abraham said they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Now listen to the rich man's argument now in verse 30. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone just goes from the dead, they will repent. If you send Lazarus, who, who died, if you send him, they'll look at it and go, Yes! Notice what? Abraham said he said to him verse 31 if you do not, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead here's something to ponder Jesus rose from the dead and people question it all the time I believe Jesus could walk this earth again and people would find some way to explain it away. Five hundred angels could surround Tolono and people could see those angels and they go, oh, it's probably something. Nothing to do. Because there were 520 witnesses to the resurrection of Christ. So that tells me, it doesn't matter what you say or what you do. This is how you have to evangelize. And why I think today is the day for salvation. If you're not sure, if you're on the fence, if you're listening, text me. Send me an email, pastormjfraser at gmail.com. 
send me an email. I'll share the gospel with you and you can trust in Christ.